Hey, everybody. Before we get this week's episode underway, I just want to send a big thank you out to everyone that took the time to listen to last week's episode and is taking the time to listen to this week's episode as well. I really, really appreciate it. If you are enjoying the podcast, please do feel free to give a like or uh, subscribe wherever you're listening to it. Uh, or even comment or share with your friends. Honestly, any of that sort of stuff goes a long, long way towards the success of a podcast, and I certainly appreciate it. Not to mention subscribing is the best way to keep track and be reminded when new episodes pop up. This week's episode is a direct continuation of last week's episode, so if you haven't listened to last week yet, I recommend stopping what you're doing right now and going back and catching up on that episode before listening to this one. Next week, I'm really excited because I will be talking to my first guest and telling their story rather than boring you with mine. So please, if you're enjoying the podcast, if you enjoy this episode, give a like, uh, comment if that's your style, share, uh, any sort of feedback or anything like that. I definitely, definitely appreciate it. Uh, Without further ado, let's get this episode underway. response. Truly, I, how can you not feel joyous with a response like that? See, I, I stand out there and I wait to come on with an anticipatory delight, knowing I'm going to come on here and work live. It sure beats the alternative. <laughs> well, I would like to say sincerely how, how nice it is to be here performing for you at the Woods Park Care Center. <laughs> well, we have a show for you today that we think is one of the finest things that's ever happened in show business. Now, I know what I'm talking about because I've been in this business for, oh, a week. Not to get too philosophical, but, you know, society isn't religious anymore. We don't have conceptions of, you know, God and faith and things that are bigger than ourselves. The religious experience is looking up to the sky and thinking, uh, I'm not alone, you know. If we don't necessarily have that anymore because secularization has, has, run it, has done its thing, um, then what... What stops you from thinking about anything beyond just yourself? And I think if you look towards the past, if you look towards where we come from, where you yourself come from, where your culture and societies come from, and from uh, and and where the things that you that you love and and that give you joy, where those feelings come from, and and whether or not maybe people in the past had similar feelings, you're being connected to something, and it's not exactly religious, but it's meaningful. And I think that can be a very exciting thing for people. I think it's something that, that could, could unite our, our kind of fractured culture and, and remind us that, you know, we're, we're not alone. We, 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 have, we have traditions, we have uh, people that came before us and, and to understand uh, their lives and, and, and what brings us here can be, um, can be very fulfilling. My name is Chris, Chris Long. I am a student at the University of Toronto and I'm studying archives and records management. Currently, I am working at the Clara Thomas Archives and Specialist Collections of York University. The past had a lot to say when I delved further into my research for my one-man show at the Aurelia Opera House. It was Jerry Lewis's solo career I was focusing on, the one that emerged out of his split with Dean Martin. I had always known about the famous Martin and Lewis breakup. A 2002 TV movie starring Sean Hayes did a decent enough job portraying the tumultuous relationship between the pair. But as I got older, the breakup seemed to speak to me in bigger terms. Their fateful partnership spanned a decade, their bond growing stronger as their wallets and fame grew. But time can be rough on friendships that close. Jerry's ego ballooned. Ever the entrepreneur, he became controlling with the act, often upstaging Dean. The media didn't help. Jerry was the star of the act in every review and news piece. Naturally, Dean grew to resent this and searched for ways to be taken seriously as a singer, something that was near impossible next to Jerry's incorrigible clown. The final ten months of their partnership, at the height of their popularity, had them barely speaking to each other. Explosive fights on set, visible tension, and rare public appearances had audiences across the globe wondering what would happen with the pair. Dean and Jerry finally split in 1956, one year before Abba and Costello would call their partnership quits. 
But even a year later, the Martin and Lewis breakup would eclipse Abbott and Costello due to the sheer pain it seemed to cause both the two men involved and the audiences who adored them. At the time of their split, they had millions of dollars held up in movie contracts and theater bookings. The Martin and Lewis machine seemed like it had many years still ahead of it, yet these two were pulling the plug while they were still on top. Their final farewell performance occurred at the Copacabana on July 25, 1956, ten years to the day from their first appearance at the 500 Club in Atlantic City. They closed their act singing Partners, the title song from one of their last films. You and me will be the greatest partners, buddies, and pals. After that, they exited stage right and stage left, and wouldn't speak to each other again for 20 years. At least that's how the narrative goes. Of course, in reality, breakups are much more complicated. Jerry and Dean did part ways, a small, stilted conversation over the phone in their dressing rooms at the end of that July 25th show closed off ten amazing years of fame, fortune, and friendship. They went off to pursue their careers, both men immediately jumping into films to make good on the broken Martin and Lewis deal with Paramount. Dean Martin would of course later go on to become a high-flying member of the Rat Pack, with pals Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. And Jerry Lewis would become a mammoth in the film and comedy industry, and between the years of 1966 and 2010, would serve as the chairman and spokesperson for the Muscular Dystrophy Association, bringing his famous telethon to life in Las Vegas each year. No one quite knows why Jerry Lewis was so involved in the Muscular Dystrophy Association. He never gave a straight answer. He once said, For those who believe in what I do, no explanation is necessary. And for those who don't believe, no explanation will suffice. In a testament to the skills of these two talented individuals, both men went on to have hugely successful careers at a time when many people wondered if one could survive without the other. The famous story is that they didn't speak to or see each other for 20 years until Frank Sinatra famously surprised Jerry at his telethon in 1976 by having a very tipsy Dean Martin walk out unannounced and to huge fanfare from the studio audience and audiences at home. In the clip, which is easy to find on YouTube, two old men with years of wisdom and experience in their glossy eyes and silver hair hug and kiss each other on the cheek. It's a touching moment made all the more powerful with the knowledge that this is the first time they're seeing each other in 20 years. In actuality, they did see each other on a few occasions prior to that. Dean would often see Jerry around the Paramount lot riding in his golf cart, and according to the Nick Tosh biography, Dino, Jerry would outright avoid Dean if he saw him coming the same way. That is until Dean cornered him saying, enough is enough. But it didn't stop there. Their silence grew, with Jerry becoming more and more bitter according to co-stars who worked with him over the decades. Stella Stevens, his co-star in The Nutty Professor, recalls being shut out by Jerry after working with Dean on a film. Dean rarely spoke about Jerry, if ever, in any interviews and never wrote any autobiographies, so it's difficult to know his feelings at the time. Jerry, on the other hand, wore his emotions on his sleeve, and later seemed to change up accounts and embellish tales as he got older. The real cause of the feud, and how it was handled after their split, remains a bit of a mystery. But we do know they saw each other, an unavoidable side effect of any breakup. There were three known public appearances, and probably a handful of private ones, over the decades. Dean interrupted Jerry's act for a brief second during the Eddie Fisher show in 1958, just two years after their split. He was working in the same studio. There's the famous 1976 telethon surprise, and then once more in 1989. In Jerry's book, Dean and Me, A Love Story, he writes about the hell of shooting what would be the final Martin and Lewis film, Hollywood or Bust, a film Jerry allegedly never saw right up to his dying day. At this point, Dean and Jerry were not saying a word to each other. The camera would stop rolling and they'd walk away, staring past each other, not seeing each other. Imagine that going from such a brotherly bond to not knowing a person in a matter of months. As Jerry Lewis sang in his first film after the Martin and Lewis split, I'll face the unknown. I'll build a world of my own. No one knows better than I myself. I'm by myself, alone. 
This was the Jerry Lewis I chose to pull from when going about creating my solo show. It wasn't necessarily the Jerry Lewis I was most drawn to, but I was doing a full-on authentic impersonation here. If Jerry was going to be alone on stage, it had to be after Dean. In truth, I only ever wanted to do a Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis show. For me, that was when Jerry was funniest. And their dynamic, their story, a tale of friendship found and lost and found again, it was something I always thought would make an excellent Broadway musical. It has the tunes, it has the dance numbers, it has the heart. All it needs is the right people behind it. But a Broadway musical was a far cry from what I was about to show the city of Aurelia. I'm Nicholas Arnold, and this is Paying Tribute. Flash forward to October 13th, 2012. The day of the show had arrived. The nerves I felt inside from the moment I woke up made me painfully aware that this was one of the biggest risks I had ever taken. I neglected to ask the promotions company how many tickets had been sold. I didn't want to know. Better to go in blind. We're starting our trip to Aurelia! Aurelia! As we drove north on the highway, past Barrie, dark storm clouds traveled above us, matching our speed. And then the rain started, tinkering down on the windshield as we drove. Please don't let this be a sign, I thought. Whatever happens, just make tonight a success. We arrived in Aurelia around 1 o'clock. We were scheduled to meet the tech crew at the Opera House at 3 p.m. The promotions company, the ones who booked me, wouldn't arrive until the show itself. Everything was left up to us. In the heart of the city rests a castle-like building, complete with red brick and steeples. Once the city hall and court, this is the Aurelia Opera House. We drove into the parking lot and pulled on the front doors. Locked. Walking around back, we found the stage door. The rain was coming down on us now, hard as we huddled under jackets. The stage door was unlocked, and so we stepped into the theater, alone, no one around. Wiping off our shoes, we climbed the stairs to the backstage area. At the Aurelia Opera House, the famous Gordon Lightfoot Auditorium sits on the second floor, above the building's lobby, box office, and studio theater space. At the landing of the stairs, a huge mural on the wall depicted the Opera House, that same red castle, in a fairy tale like land with hills of green grass and blue skies surrounding it. Well, that's not what it looks like from the outside. <laughs> Maybe that's what it used to be. They shaved off the mountains. <laughs> oh, the pageantry. Who, I want to know who lived at this house with like, like where we are standing, looking out over it all. <laughs> The lights were on, but the building seemed empty. Until the building's tech director, Claude, stepped out of his office, introducing himself and startling the three of us. Claude helped us bring our minimal gear up the lift outside the building, which consisted of a few suitcases, some tables, and a stool, not a complex load-in by any stretch of the imagination. Then we proceeded to set up on the Gordon Lightfoot stage. Our nerves and complete inexperience spoke for itself in the silence. At one point, Claude asked Gary if he would be calling the show, a term used by stage managers who essentially, amongst many other duties, call out cues to the lighting and sound operators as the show goes on. Gary recalls at that moment thinking, dude, I have no idea what I'm doing. But what instead came out of his mouth was, why yes, I'll be calling the show. Claude handed him a headset. Great. This will be yours. This microphone, the volume, I'm, like, I'm going to speak like the... the um, like, Hello, Aurelia. Pleasure and good evening. I'm so very glad to be here and so happy to be performing for you on this year's stage. Take a trip down and remain in the center room. Recollection Boulevard. And bring out your inner child. And if you come away with only one thought this evening, let it be this. We never really grow up. We just learn how to act in public. Sounds good for my end. Volume-wise? Looks great from my end. Okay. After sound check, we were left to our defenses, where we set up camp in our dressing room. My nerves were jumping in my skin, my hands shaking. I could barely eat. What had I gotten myself into? The rain poured outside, and at around 30 minutes to showtime, with the auditorium doors open to the public, 
we were told we had sold around 200 seats. 200 seats. Not bad for a no-name kid impersonating an 80-plus-year-old comedian. That is until you realize the Gordon Lightfoot Auditorium seats 700. 200 people in a 700-seat theater would feel like nothing. With no band and no one else on stage with me, I would have my work cut out for me. 8 o'clock arrived. Dressed in my frumpy suit with a clip-on bow tie, I stood in the wings next to Gary and Rebecca. The small murmur of a crowd could be heard just past the lip of the stage. How quickly could I get through this? A 90-minute one-man show could feel like an eternity in front of 200 people. The promotions company that had hired me had paired my show randomly, it seemed, with the Sharing Place Food Bank, with proceeds going to the charity. They not only insisted, but required me to take a 20-minute intermission at some point, encouraging patrons to visit their booth in the lobby. What if I couldn't get the momentum back after 20 minutes? What if people left before the second act? With the show about to start, all of this was out of my control. What was still within my control was stopping it. I could stop it. I could walk right out on stage and tell everyone to go home. What's the worst that could happen? Well, I wouldn't have a chance to find out. Okay, will you let me know when we're good? Awesome, thanks. Gary nodded, listening to a voice in his headset. He turned to me. You ready, Nick? No, I said. And then, yes. Gary went back to the headset. Okay, bring the lights down. I could see through the wings as the house lights went down and a hush fell over the crowd. Gary leaned into the house microphone and putting on his best announcer voice, he spoke. Ladies and gentlemen, the crazy half of the Martin and Lewis duo, here he is, Jerry Lewis! I was off to the races. I weaved through a script I had rehearsed in the privacy of my room, hours on end. My heart was pounding and adrenaline was shooting through my body. Truth was, I actually felt great. I felt like I was right where I needed to be, doing what I needed to be doing. I was headlining my own show. I was on fire. Thank you very much. You have to forgive me. I'm a little out of breath because well, it's been a long day and I've been reading the whole time. Particular about your house, your homes, your boots, your furnishings. Well, what about your cigarettes? Are you particular about those? Introducing the new Superbo cigarette. A cigarette without the harmful tar, tobacco, chemicals, just plain filter. Now friends, uh, I teach the Wamba, the Stamba, the Kanka, the Waltzes, skip to the Wu, my darling, uh, anything you want to learn. One hand, two ducks, three squatting geese, four Olympic oysters, five corpulent porpoises, six pair of Dean Martin's tweezers, seven thousand Macedonians in full battle array. Unfortunately, that's not exactly how it looked from the perspective of the audience. In truth, I was bombing. Pretty badly, too. As it turned out, I retrospectively discovered that, due to a non-existent marketing campaign and poor word choice on tickets and brochures, many people thought they had purchased front row seats to see the real Jerry Lewis. At 30 bucks a ticket, what a steal that would be. It didn't help any that I was full-on pretending to be Jerry Lewis, a true impersonation. There was no trace of Nicholas Arnold on the stage. Where there should have been laughter, at least according to the numerous YouTube videos I was ripping my material from, there instead was confusion and silence. I watched from the stage as people stood mid-monologue or comedic routine and dragged their elderly mother out of the row, giving me a death glare to last a lifetime as they stormed out of the auditorium, likely typing angry emails on their phones to the box office as they left. Still, my spirits weren't dampened, not even slightly. I was doing what I felt I was meant to be doing, and for a brief moment, I had transported myself back in time to the late 1940s, when the last remains of vaudeville were merging with the big band and jazz era that would soon give birth to rock and roll. I was in heaven. Some of you may or may not know that I turned down Jack Lemmon's role in Some Like It Hot. I did. I did see. I didn't feel personally that I could bring anything funny to the role, and the wardrobe was very funny, but I didn't want to compete with wardrobe, so I turned it down. Now whenever Billy Wilder sees me, he always says, How you doing, schmuck? <laughs> and without fail, on every birthday and anniversary, Jack Lemmon sends me flowers with a card that reads, Thanks for being an idiot. <laughs> there we go! Did everybody have a good time? Yeah, we're officially out of the awesome play. time. That was the best day I had in days. In 
days. Like in two days? It was so fun. We had a blast, blast, blast. The high after my dud of a first solo show lasted for a few weeks. And as I always did with new footage, I was quick to cut together a promo and post it online. A decision this time around that would change the course of everything I had been doing. And dramatically at that. I was blissfully unaware in my naivety just how rough that first show at the O'Reilly Opera House really was. Selective memory can be a wonderful gift and at times can be the thing that removes fear from the equation when faced with the prospect of doing something similar again. In my mind the house had been full and I was an absolute hit. The footage certainly said otherwise, although my training in film school had me yielding a sharp and snappy promo video that lined up closer to the events that played out in my mind rather than the ones that occurred in reality. I didn't know how to make my next move and luckily, a few months later, fate and luck would step in and make the move for me. In early February, I had begun negotiations with a man who would become my first agent in Toronto. I was on my way, I thought. Surely this is the next step. This agent would see my potential and get me the best roles like that. Isn't that how it goes? On the same day that my soon-to-be agent sent over a contract for me to sign, I received an email from a man named Robert Shaw. Robert ran a production company in Arizona called Lonely Street Productions, a wink and a nod to Elvis's Heartbreak Hotel. Lonely Street was renowned in Tucson and the surrounding area for producing high-end professional tribute shows, everything from Elvis to Johnny Cash, doo-wop divas of the 50s and more. In short, Robert's email stated that they had stumbled upon my videos online, including the fateful Aurelia Opera House headliner, and were wondering if I would be at all interested in flying out to Arizona to take part in a seven-city tour of a Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis show. They needed a last-minute replacement and had reached out to only one other individual in the States. With full disclosure, they were planning on going with whomever they could reach agreeable terms with first. It was happening. My dream. The show would be backed by a six-piece live band, a far cry from my track show at the Opera House. And I would be paid well, more dollars a week than I could conceptualize in my current state as a barista making $11 an hour. I was equal parts ecstatic and overwhelmed, and quickly involved my agent to help with negotiations. I was yet to sign his contract. It looked like if this deal went through, I'd be making my new agent a few hundred dollars right off the bat. That made him happy, and he was quick to dive in and take over. Before I knew it, I had a flight booked to Tucson, Arizona for March of 2013, and I had signed on to portray Jerry Lewis in Lonely Street Productions, the best of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Success stories like Jim Carrey and Martin Short always made it seem like in order to make it big as a Canadian, you first had to be recognized in the US. And now I had my chance in a role I felt I was meant to do. Upon arriving in Tucson, I met Robert, the owner and lead performer in Lonely Street. He was playing Dean. He didn't look like Dean, and although a fantastic singer, didn't necessarily sound like him either. That was my first lesson in the art of tribute performing, and it was a revelation. Robert took me aside during rehearsal one day and said, You know, Nick, you don't have to be Jerry Lewis. This isn't an impersonation show. Robert's angle, with all his shows, was to tell stories in a loose concert format, rather than be in character. It was a different approach from anything I had seen, including Steve's Rat Pack show I had seen in Mississauga. And I liked it. Robert's approach allowed for the performer himself to come through. It also opened up the opportunity for storytelling. Once you stepped out of the realm of impersonation, you could tell objective tales about the legend you were honoring. Of course, capturing the essence and feel of that performer was of utmost importance. My first rehearsal was with Robert and a man named Chris Dodge. Chris was the musical director for The Martin Lewis Show and would eventually go on to form his own very successful company in Tucson, appropriately called Chris Dodge Entertainment. You'll eventually hear more about Chris over the series as his influence on the nostalgia industry is widespread and my connection to his work grew over the years. But upon our first meeting, Chris himself admitted to not being overly impressed with me. I came across as very green and not up to snuff with Robert's level of performing. That first rehearsal was rough. How good could it be with three guys in a room and a keyboard? To make matters worse, both Chris and Robert wanted me to sing in their show, something I had never done before. Another reason why my one-man opera house debut was a flop. 
Jerry Lewis, in his solo career, became famous for such anthems as You'll Never Walk Alone and Rock About Your Baby with a Dixie Melody, that latter one being the song they wanted me to sing. Experimenting with keys and pitch, I struggled through my first sing-through of the song, and Chris slowed down on the keys to keep my pace. It wasn't until our first rehearsal with the band, a trumpet player, trombone, saxophone, bass, and drummer, that I started to explode. I had an audience to perform for. By the time we got to the point in the show where Robert wanted me to lip-sync to Mario Lanza's Be My Love, as Jerry Lewis famously did throughout his career, I had the band in stitches. Chris began to quickly change his opinion of me. Of course the manic comedian is going to seem strange and unfunny in an empty room. But give him an audience? Watch him shine. A couple of key adjustments to Rockabye Your Baby that suited my baritone low tenor range, and we were off. My first experience touring seemed like everything I imagined it would be in my daydreams. For once, I truly felt like the legends I idolized. An avid hiker, Chris would often invite me on mountain walks early in the morning, where I began to get to know him and his family better. We'd hike until soundcheck at 2pm, do a show to 400 or 600 people, all of whom would line up in the lobbies afterwards to meet Robert and I, drink with the band at local bars until the wee hours of the morning, rinse and repeat. I was living the life and getting paid to do it. Not only that, but the show felt like a hit. We struck the perfect balance between good music and singing and manic slapstick comedy, just as Martin Lewis had once done. And we felt like superstars. Or at least I did. Everyone in the audience wanted to shake my hand and talk to me and find out my story. An unknown boy from Canada was making waves in small pockets in Yuma and Tucson, Phoenix and blah blah blah. One night towards the end of the tour, Robert had taken me out for a drink at one of his favorite places in Tucson, a magnificent mansion with a large property surrounded by a tall shrubbery, a place where Clark Gable and many other Golden Age stars once frequented. One could order a drink and roam through the house, play chess in the study, or sit by the bar and watch a live trio play complex jazz motifs. Outside, casual whiskey lovers played croquet in the yard or fell into deep conversations over gin by a glowing blue pool under the starry desert sky. There, Robert gave me his true opinions on my one-man show. Have you ever thought about having a band, he asked? I had, but I told Robert about how much I had asked for at the Opera House gig. Even if I didn't take a penny, I'd be underpaying a three-piece band by more than a lot. You have to upsell yourself, Nick, Robert told me. Say you're worth a thousand dollars and you will be. I returned to Toronto elated. Arrogance oozed out of me and I felt as though I had hit my big break. The single thing that was going to be my calling card. After all, we had been a hit with our audience of retirees and seasonal vacationers. It was only a matter of time before I would be a hit here. So the fantasy told me. I had big dreams of bringing both Robert and Chris to Canada and putting the show on here. Everyone was doing Rat Pack shows, but no one in Canada was doing a Martin Lewis show. I immediately dove into meetings with my new agent. He had me under an exclusive contract, which restricted me from going to any other agent or manager during our term. 
So without giving it much thought, I reached out to Steve and Paul and told them I had found myself a dean and an agent and wouldn't be collaborating with them. I did what many people warn young actors not to do, burn bridges. I never heard back from Steve or Paul. They moved on quickly and eventually so would I. My new agent and I discussed my future. He was eager to get me out of the Jerry Lewis thing and convinced me that I should be eager too. Who is Nick Arnold, the actor? Let's focus on that, he said. This guy thought I had the potential outside of the tribute world, and who was I to argue? But there were still commitments to fill. Prior to the Arizona gig, the promotions company that had booked me at the Aurelia Opera House had secured a booking for me in June of 2013 in my hometown of Kingston, Ontario, at the Grand Theatre, another gorgeous 700-seat building. I was committed to fulfilling that contract, and tickets had already been on sale for months, but I was sick to my stomach over the idea of going back to a track show. After performing with a live band in the southern American desert, how on earth could I go back to playing along to a CD with no one else to share the stage with? Even the most groan-worthy jokes become elevated when a drummer hits a rim shot behind you. Aside from that, Robert had taught me to steer clear of impersonations. Show the audience who Nick is. Tell Jerry Lewis's story rather than pretending to be living it. I knew if I was going to fulfill my contract, things had to change. I went back to the promotions company and set forth a new list of demands. My fee would go from $200 to $900 for the night. Still an incredibly modest amount, considering I would be using that money to pay three musicians I would eventually hire from the Kingston jazz music scene, as well as a little something for Gary and Rebecca, who still agreed to stage manage. I rewrote the show entirely, adding my voice to it and a few musical numbers, including Rockabye Your Baby and That Old Black Magic. And then I put on the show. It was a modest audience. Once again, with minimal marketing, we were undersold by about 500 seats. Those seats that were filled were mostly made up of supportive friends and family. But the show was stronger. It had a voice and a pulse that the Opera House gig simply didn't. I was growing as a performer and storyteller. When I started doing this show, I, I actually I took it around to nursing homes and retirement homes in the GTA. That's, you figure that's the audience, right? Well, I, there's a lot of stories you come away from with that. I, I once performed at a retirement home, and, uh... Is that funny, lady? <laughs> Listen, you're laughing at that, you're gonna have a hernia by the end of the night. <laughs> Tonight, we are here to celebrate the comedy and career of Jerry Lewis, but broader than that, we take a look at old-school comedy. The type of comedy that seems to only exist in YouTube clips of Martin Lewis, Abbott and Costello, Hope and Crosby, Carol Burnett, the list goes on. But to do this, we need to go way back, long before the Labor Day telethon, before the Nutty Professor even, before Martin Lewis, a young boy by the name of Joseph Levitch, struggles to make it as a comedian mining to records. After the Kingston gig, my agent and I felt it time to burn yet another bridge, this time with the promotions company that had given me the opportunity that had kicked this all into high gear in the first place. I was angry with how marketing of the Kingston gig had been handled, and with my agent's goal of having me step away from Jerry Lewis, it seemed like a good idea at the time. This was not met with pleasant ears from the promotions company. They felt this as a huge betrayal, and even more so that the severing of ties were coming from my agent rather than me. The greatest lessons I learned from that first agent were not to burn bridges. Steve, Paul, and now the promotions company that had booked an inexperienced nobody in the Aurelia Opera House on good faith. Eventually, that agent would go too, along with his advice and guidance, marking the beginning of a two-year hiatus from acting and performing. I still had hopes that Robert and Chris would come to Canada and we'd do the Dean and Jerry show and make it a smash hit, but it never did happen. Years went by, contacts became distant, companies changed and evolved, Chris eventually branched off to form his own company and Robert focused on the shows in his roster that were guaranteed to make money at theaters. That left me here in Canada without an agent and with no prospects. The best of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis was a dream come true but didn't do everything I wanted it to. With it being strictly a concert, Robert preferred to dwell on the positives of the Martin Lewis dynamic rather than mention their split or long-running feud. For me, that had always been the root of the story. I now had dreams of doing the Best of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis show again, here in Canada, and having the show grow and expand as we explored the fascinating dynamic between two legendary entertainers. But it simply wouldn't happen. 
Years would go by and I found myself immersed in work, doing whatever I could to make rent and buy groceries. I had stopped performing. There was no formal moment where I quit, it just all eventually stopped. I hadn't heard from Robert or Chris and I began to accept no matter how many times I would pitch the Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis show to various theaters here in Ontario, the show would never happen again. I had gotten my wish. I brought the Martin and Lewis dynamic back to life. I had the opportunity to play Jerry Lewis in front of a live band before audiences of hundreds who all stood to their feet after each performance. It was time for me to lay the obsession to rest and move on. My night job became that of an usher at a prominent theatre in the city, where I was surrounded by artistic types, many of whom were working actors, others who were not. Two years into my job, I now fell into the latter category. I couldn't realistically call myself an actor anymore and had no prospects to get back in the game, as they call it. I'd forgotten what it felt like and there was no longer any drive behind me. That's not to say I wasn't creative in that time. After performing in Arizona, I had finished producing a feature film I'd been working on over the course of six years. But when it came to the performance side of things, a few bad plays had left a rotten taste in my mouth, and I was out. For a while, anyway. 2015, two years after performing in Arizona with the best of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, one of my good friends at the theater and someone who was and is well-connected and influential in the Toronto comedy scene, messaged me one morning out of the blue. His message simply read, this came across my desk. It was an audition posting for a concert bio starring a man named Derek Marshall, who was a singer crooner based in Barrie. Titled Dean and Jerry, What Might Have Been, the semi-biographical concert would, through song, storytelling, and comedic slapstick, tell the story of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, their ill-fated relationship, their solo careers, and their inevitable reunion on the 1976 MDA telethon. The what might have been part would explore their partnership had they never split, taking a peek at what a concert of theirs might have looked like in the 1960s and 70s. They were looking for a Jerry Lewis. I leapt out of bed. My phone practically flying across the room. This was the show I was meant to do. This was the show I had always dreamed of. My excitement had me frantically flailing my body over to my computer desk to type an anxiety-ridden email. I was moving so fast I had barely noticed where the production was being produced out of. In a random, ironic, and poetic twist of fate, Dean and Jerry, what might have been, was being produced by the Aurelia Opera House. It had been three years since I bombed at the Opera House with my one-man show. Would they remember me? I didn't care. I typed with vigor and speed that rivaled Jerry Lewis's manic typewriter routine. I included videos from Arizona, videos from the Opera House, everything that I possibly could to convince the creative team that I was the one for them. I received a response from a man named Jesse Collins. Jesse is the artistic director at the Aurelia Opera House. He started a few years after my fateful night there. Jesse worked in the film industry for many years as an actor, director, and producer. In the early 90s, he starred in and directed an internationally syndicated television series called Cats and Dog. Cats spelt K-A-T-T-S. In 2001, Jesse was nominated for an Emmy Award for his direction of the wildlife series Zabumafu for PBS, a show that many people from my generation would recognize. And now, Jesse Collins was writing and directing Dean and Jerry What Might Have Been. Jesse's response was beyond enthusiastic, if not a little shocked. He admitted months later that the task of finding someone to pay homage to Jerry Lewis was weighing down on him, and seemed incredibly daunting at first. In fact, he had decided to do the show without realizing just how difficult it may be to find a Jerry. He put out the casting call without expecting much back, and through some sort of cosmic intervention, mine was the first email he received. Through emails, Jesse immediately began telling me about Derek Marshall. The show had been built around him. Jesse and Derek had worked together at the Upper Canada Playhouse in Morrisburg, a small but charming Sleepy Hollow-like town between Brockville and Ottawa. They produced a show cheekily called Lights, Camera, Christmas. Derek had also done a five-week run of his one-man show Vegas Nights at both the Aurelia Opera House and the Morrisburg Playhouse. 
Derek's a singer who relishes and thrives in the music from the realm of the American pop standards, as was evident from the videos I dug up online as I began my research. Derek had performed internationally in a wide variety of venues, including jazz and blues clubs, hotel lounges, casino showrooms, in cities from Vienna, Austria to Edmonton, Alberta. Derek had the essence of a younger Dean. I'll let you take a listen. Now those close to Dino say that that was just an act, and that the glass that was always close at hand was filled with nothing more than apple juice. Well, perhaps it was the greatest act of a guy who was slightly bombed, singing songs, telling jokes, and having the time of his life. So, uh, well, we got a drink here, and I got a song in the heart, so let's have the time of our life. Give me that chord. That's how it's spelled. Despite my plethora of footage and experience in the world of Jerry Lewis, Jesse still wanted to somewhat informally have me out for an audition with Derek. My first reaction was of absolute frustration. Frustration that was obviously based out of fear. It had been three solid years since my last audition, and this was a role I felt absolutely qualified for. In retrospect, it made sense. Jesse was investing a lot in this project and putting a lot on the line to make it happen. The wrong Jerry could bring all of that crashing down. Sure, I had the credentials, but what if I ended up being a psychopath, or worse, an egomaniac? Months later, I sat outside the audition room at the Ryerson Film and Television Building, waiting to be called in. I listened as people ahead of me belted out the final notes of Rockabye Your Baby. All of them were better singers, trained singers even. I watched as they came out of the room wearing faux bow ties with greasy comb-over hair. I was dressed in a hoodie. My hair was overgrown and unwashed. Jesse had given me the advantage of having me prepare whatever I wanted, and so I had written a 10-minute set of some of Jerry Lewis's best material. Still, in spite of all of that, I was nervous. Anxious beyond belief, actually. What if I lost this to somebody else? I bitterly eyed the other hopefuls, waiting for their moment in the room. What did they know? Had they been doing Jerry Lewis since they were 13? Watching him since they were 8? Did they headline a show? Did they perform in the States with a live band? You know, jealousy can put awful thoughts in your brain. I'm sure they were all very talented. Finally, my time in the room arrived. Jesse is an enthusiastic and positive individual who immediately spreads warmth when entering a room, and this was no exception. He greeted me with a double handshake, and I was immediately put at ease. Derek Marshall sat with him at the table, his hands behind his head. After a bit of small talk, I dove into my routine, lifted from the Kingston leg of my one-man performance. I weaved in and out of my Jerry persona, telling a Coles Notes version of his story, and interspersing his routines in, impersonating his characters, singing Rockabye Your Baby, and ending with the typewriter routine. Both Jesse and Derek received the routine with applause. Do you want to head up there, Derek? Try some stuff out? Jesse looked at both of us. Sing a little of That's Amore? Derek stood up with me, the two of us in front of Jesse. He began singing Dean Martin's first number one hit, That's Amore, a cappella. I jumped in, improvising around Derek, chiming in with my Lewis voice with every That's Amore call and response. I jumped around and over Derek, grabbing him and messing with his hair as Jerry would have done to Dean. We finished with an unrehearsed harmony to Jesse's applause. The chemistry was there. And the three of us were about to become a creative team, as like-minded as the Three Stooges must have been to make their silly brand of slapstick work. The rehearsal process was for two weeks at the beginning of July 2016 in Aurelia. That process included writing, charting, and general creation of the overall show. The mind behind the charts belonged to Meredith Zwicker, a prolific actor and musician in the theatre industry whose brilliance was not left behind when it came to the complexity of the Martin and Lewis numbers we'd be including. Controlled chaos was what we were after, and we were including everything, all of their greatest hits from That's Amore to Side by Side to their later solo performances such as You'll Never Walk Alone and Everybody Loves Somebody Sometime. In a structure I immediately got on board with, the show's first act would tell the story of the 10-year relationship between Jerry and Dean, their rise to fame and their eventual breakup. The act would end with their split, leaving the audience unsure of where things would be headed next. We wouldn't be playing Dean or Jerry. In a similar style to Robert's show, we would maintain our own personalities. I would be Nick, 
he would be Derek, and we would tell the story of the boys, weaving in and out of their personalities, skits, and songs. Act two would begin with the boys and their solo efforts, Jerry's telethon years, Dean's Rat Pack years, leading up to their famed reunion in 1976. It was an emotional and riveting idea, and I fell in love with it. And it really worked. The chemistry between Derek and I is what truly made things click. The show wasn't without its hilarious, cringeworthy moments. As a still growing performer, Dean and Jerry What Might Have Been taught me a lot in its opening run and continues to teach me with every run we put on today. If I wasn't pulling up an elderly lady with mobility issues to dance with me, leaving her walker behind at her seat, I was yelling in jest at a patron for having their foot in the way and tripping me, only to later discover that patron had one foot. And so I continue to learn. But none of these innocent blunders changed the way people left the show, with the remnants of tears in their eyes from hard and healthy belly laughs. Two years and counting, the show has gone on to delight audiences across the province, and at this point has almost become more about the onstage relationship between Derek and I, and how it evokes the lost art form of the nightclub act through the mannerisms of Dean and Jerry. What kind of number are you thinking about? I was thinking about the nice Trallian song. Trallian? Yeah. It's not Trallian. It's our Trallian. Oh, our Trallian. I'll get these right out of your head, yeah, sir. Listen, I'm sure the monkey's missing his hat. Let's go. Come ha, on. ha, ha. Sticks and stones, sir. Sticks As Jesse, Meredith, Derek, and I often recounted over the summer, there's something special with this show. And all this to say, that's how I wound up where I am now. It took me two episodes, but I hope by now you have some sort of idea of how I wound up in this strange world of entertainment. This also gives you some context as to why and how I've connected with some of the fascinating individuals you're about to hear from on this podcast. In my quest to understand what it is I do and why I've found myself so immersed in an era I never grew up in, I sought out others who were similar to me. And once I started that journey, I was quick to realize my world was about to get a whole lot bigger. From a man whose journey with Charlie Chaplin has brought him to India and beyond, to an American Idol finalist's journey through success, regret, and Ella Fitzgerald. These are only some of the people I've connected with and who you'll be hearing from over the course of this limited series. Jerry Lewis holds a special place in my heart. Not because of who he was. His political views and overall demeanor were nowhere close to mine. And not even because of his comedy or what he did for entertainment, but because through his work, I was able to come out of my shell and discover a way to the stage I'm not so sure I would have found without him. You'll find many of my colleagues share similar sentiments for the legends and idols that they also look up to. We must not forget our past. Through it, we find meaning in our present and explore new avenues for which we can approach our future. When it comes to entertainment, the past whispers at us through the voices of modern comedians, the newest hit singles, and the latest from Hollywood. Golden Age thinking is simply a way to keep our arts and culture alive, a way in which to understand where the art of our choice came from and its trajectory in future years. In many ways, the performers you'll hear from on this show are archivists in their own right, preserving and presenting an element of our past that they hope will thrive for generations to come. That's how I've come to look at it. When a patron comes up to me teary-eyed after seeing our show, 
their frail hands wrapping around me in a hug, telling me they saw the real Martin and Lewis at Maple Leaf Gardens in the early 50s. I can't help but feel like we're tapping into something special. What that is, I hope to only further explore. I gotta say, doing this show is not something I would have expected I'd be doing two years ago. And uh, every time I do this show, I'm taking a major risk with it. You never know how this stuff is gonna go over. And you never know the type of audience that you're gonna get. And I have to say, you guys have been absolutely wonderful. Um, it means a lot to me to be performing here. I know a lot of you in the audience know me and our friends and family. And really, for me, that makes it quite special tonight to be performing for you. And what I want to say directly to you, those of you that I don't love, is that you gotta take risks. I, if there's anything I've learned over the course of doing this show, it's you gotta take risks. You gotta step out of your comfort zone and not be afraid to stumble into things that seem a little strange at first. And I suppose that's why I gravitate so much to Jerry Lewis, because I see him as a guy who took risks throughout his entire career. He faced his fears on stage to the American public. And whether you like him or not, you can't knock a guy for that. Paying Tribute is written, produced, and edited by myself. Special thanks to Christopher Long for his interview. For a complete list of music used in this podcast, please read the description wherever you are listening for a list of songs and Creative Commons licenses. Some names in this particular episode have been changed for privacy purposes. And here's a little sneak peek of next week's episode. I finally step away from my story to tell someone else's. A few days later, Matt was sitting in science class when his phone rang in his pocket. Seeing the unknown number, he excused himself, asking to go to the washroom. Sprinting down the hall, he found a quiet place to take the call. And it's Ken Davenport, who again, big time Broadway producer and everything, and, I, and he said they wanted me to audition for the Michael Jackson part. Well, now the pressure was on. Despite never performing professionally, Matt had perfected his impression with friends and at Halloween parties, school assemblies, and talent shows. This was something he could do, and he could do well. That all happens next week on Paying Tribute.